Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Foots on Film podcast. My name is Scott. I am joined today by Drew. Hello there. And also Craig. Hiya. So just another one of our random intermission podcasts. We just have a chat about some of the films, what we have seen as the year 2020 crumbles to a close. <laughs> as it drags itself by its fingernails across the finish line. Yes. So, uh, with no further ado, let's get a cracking. And the first film on today's slate is Black Bear. Uh, Drew, what's all that about? Alison, played by Aubrey Plaza, in a, at first, very Aubrey Plaza way, though with more immediate menace rather than mischief, as you might expect from April Ludgate, is an independent filmmaker and former actress. She stopped getting acting work because she was too difficult. Who arrives at a large house in the forest in upstate New York ostensibly to write a new film. Here she meets her hosts, a passive-aggressive couple Blair and Gabe, Sarah Gadden and Christopher Abbott, and Gabe flirts with Alison. Blair and she trade hollow and sincere compliments, both question her about the whereabouts of her husband, but Alison tells him she's not married. There's a few kind of slightly uncomfortable exchanges there, but well, she's just there to be a, a guest in what they're effectively turning into a B&B for artists. As Alison's time with a couple passes, though, sexual tension begins to build between Alison and Gabe, and more regular tension between Gabe and Blair. The two aren't suited for each other and are clearly continuing their relationship due to Blair's pregnancy. Things come to a head on an evening fuelled by cannabis and wine, with Alison delighting in pulling levers and pushing buttons, prompting arguments between Gabe and Blair, including on the subject of traditional gender roles and how their breakdown has destabilised society as well as unfulfilled creative lives and artistic dissatisfaction. The evening ends almost exactly as you would expect, and with apparent tragedy. And then... Bang. Reset. We're at the house in the woods again, and Alison's again in her red swimsuit on the pontoon at the edge of the lake below the house, as we saw her earlier. But now it's the final day of a film shoot. Gabe is the director, married to Alison, and colluding with Blair to torment Alison and make her believe they're having an affair, in order to draw out a more realistic performance. The house is full of crew, including the world's worst script supervisor, with numerous minor dramas going on while someone must find a spectacularly drunk Alison and get her ready for the climactic scene. Which is real? Is any of it? The final shot of the film seems to answer and actually also very nearly ruins the whole film for me, though not specifically for that reason. So, you know, well played, Mr Levine. Um, Fortunately, it didn't, but it was a close thing. Black Bear is very meta. Very, very meta, and with levels of meta. Everyone is lying. Even the film is lying. But isn't that what the film is? A crafted lie. Everything is a performance of some kind or other, including our own relationships. All of the conversations and interactions, the jokes, the compliments, perhaps to deceive, perhaps to flatter, perhaps simply to stop us thinking about the void that lies beneath and within. There is a very dark undercurrent to Black Bear. Done wrong, this could be absolutely insufferable. And perhaps even on a different day, I would have found it so. I really, really enjoyed it. Crucial to that is the central, exceptional performance from Aubrey Plaza in a role specifically written for her. 
And even that role is meta, as it plays with Plaza's perception as an actress, particularly her stereotyping as Parks and Recreation's April, a character who, of course, was also lying, the aloof, sarcastic, ironic millennial who cared far more than she was willing to let on. The structure of the film is flawed, unfinished perhaps, as if writer-director Lawrence Michael Levine didn't quite get everything to join up. Perhaps it just needs a third iteration of the characters, but there are some genuinely wonderful scenes, playing like modern takes on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, with the poison seeping out of toxic relationships into the air. The dialogue crackles and is delivered so well by the three principals that you can begin to feel embarrassed and uncomfortable in their presence and want to excuse yourself from their company. And, as an aside, had I seen Possessor before I saw this, I would have been shocked that Christopher Abbott could produce such a performance. (laughs) Though instead it was the lifeless performance in Possessor that surprised me. A strong recommendation for me, though definitely not a film for everyone. Yes, um, fair warning, it was on a bit of a strop this week, so I only managed 15 minutes of this. It manages 15 minutes of bickering, at which point I went, no, <laughs> no thank you, not playing with this, so um, I, I may go back and give it a, a look. It certainly has a reputation for being the kind of more complex film that you, you described there, so I'm sure I will get some joy from it in some moods, but yes, I was very much in the mood where it was just annoying me, so um, I, I maybe need to go and watch it pass through its first kind of a twist, if you like, but yeah... Um, Yes, I can certainly vouch for it being divisive in certain ways. Well, it's certainly not a film for me in so much in the sense that I haven't seen it, so I'll keep my opinions to myself. <laughs> okay, Craig, well, will you, will, 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 will you, will you, will you, will you speak better than I do? Um, <laughs> yes, I will do, yes. I will. will you give us your opinions on Possessor, please? Yes, I'd, I noticed you touched on Possessor there, and I, had, I don't think I'd seen Christopher Abbott before, but I certainly I. saw him in Possessor. Brandon Kroberg, uh, Brandon Kroberg, a man who doesn't exist to the best of my knowledge. Um, <laughs> Brandon Cronenberg, son of David, has released only his second full-length feature film, Possessor, starring Andrea Riseborough as Tasia Voss, an agent for a firm specialising in corporate assassinations. The method of these assassinations involves Voss inserting her own consciousness into the mind of a subject near the target and using their body to commit the act. One quick mental exit by suicide later, and the perfect crime has been committed. Only the process takes its toll on the agents involved, and Voss's boss Gerder, Jennifer Jason Lee, is concerned that her star operative is losing both her mind and her edge on account of her attachment to her ex-husband and son. The firm's next big job is on the cards and will set them up financially for quite some time. But once inside her unwitting vessel, a former drug dealer working a low-level job inside his fiancé's father's corporation, Voss's mind begins to fall out of sync with her host and a battle for control ensues which could ruin the whole operation. It seems by turns easy and disingenuous to suggest that the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree in terms of the Cronenberg name, but while Brandon clearly exhibits some of the body horror sensibilities upon which his father built his reputation, the psychedelic style here is very much his own. I found Possessor much more immediately accessible than his father's early works, and despite, or maybe because of, the oppressive overtones and generally dark subject matter, I enjoyed it a great deal. 
Having completely forgotten her role in the death of Stalin, I was recalling Riseborough only by her performance in Oblivion, which is about as removed from Possessor in terms of sci-fi as you can probably get. I'm going to go ahead and say that I presume those of you who have seen Mandy will find her performance here less of a surprise than I did. Though we never get to know Tanya Voss perhaps as deeply as would be entirely satisfying, Riseborough's performance is nonetheless excellent, her personality a half-octave away from those around her as her grip of sanity begins to slip. It's a bold performance in a number of ways, some of which stick out more than others, and it makes me wonder that Riseborough's profile is nowhere near where it ought to be, having once been pigeonholed as the next big thing, before sliding again into something more than obscurity, but certainly less than stardom. Ultimately, though, it's Cronenberg's film, and if this is his jam, then you can count me in for whatever he, is, whatever he does next. There are moments of genuinely shocking violence which may be challenging for some viewers, though they seem justifiable enough within the context of the narrative. But it's the director's understanding of tone and willingness to experiment visually that make Cronenberg one to watch. The pervasive sense of unease he has evoked here is right in my wheelhouse, coupled with visual techniques that evoke the best elements of horror works as diverse as Early Argento and Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. I have a feeling that mileage will vary more than usual in this one, and if someone were to level the argument that possess is more surface than substance, I don't know that I could counter all that effectively. It certainly appeals to me, however, and despite a conclusion that feels like it deserved the rest of the movie to have been a little more evenly baked, I very much enjoyed Possessor. And this is where I suspect you guys are going to tell me that you absolutely hated it. <laughs> uh, we watched, uh, I think all three of us watched the same version, the, the version called Possessor Uncut. Yeah. Which suggests to me there's a shorter version I could have wasted my time with. <laughs> which would have been much more agreeable to me because I hated this with a passion. Actually, really? no, that's not true. I just hated it. I yeah. wish there'd been anything for it to give me a passion at all because it's, it's terrible. Right. We can still be <laughs> friends, Drew. It's just, I, I thought um, Andrew Riceborough was terrible in this and Chris Rabbit was terrible in this because there are no characters in this film. Hmm. Um, nobody has a personality. Not one person in the film has a personality. And I didn't care about what happened to anything. I, I get that the idea is that Andrea Riceborough's character is kind of losing her sense of self in this job that she does, but she's a sociopathic murderer who has killed two people within the first couple of minutes of the film. And like, well, I don't care. She's not an interesting character. She's just a bad person doing bad things and there's nothing to suggest she's tormented or any reason why she did this job. No, it's like, oh, right, she's a murderer and now she's corrupted this poor guy's brain um, and turned him into a murderer as well. Great. My kind of gal. And then <laughs> it ends after a couple of days. It's just, no, it's terrible. And it's quite interesting how different you feel about the, the violence to me, Craig, because mm. I really didn't like it. Um, oh, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't like it. Well, it's not no, something but, um, that I enjoyed, you know. But uh, well, that, that's good to know. Uh, <laughs> that's certainly reassuring. But like, <laughs> yeah, I know, like body horror has that kind of stuff in like um, certain genre pictures, like slasher films and stuff. Like, kind of revel in the gore. But because this film is trying to be so serious, I just felt that it was out of place. It felt so gratuitous, like that. Like even the film's opening, the stabbing of that lawyer, it felt almost sexual. Um, it's so over the top, and like, why? Why are you focusing on so much violence and then ripping out old seed and beans eye and stuff? It's like can't see my, can't see my, no, no, can't see my poker face. <laughs> um, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it seems 
it's gratuitous, it's unnecessary. And, um, and, and the, the tone of the film, it, just, it didn't match. It's not like going for cheap thrills or anything or to make people go, or kind of laugh at the fans. It's like, this is horrible. But I don't think it adds anything. In fact, I think it, it detracts very much from any potential point it has. Although the film doesn't have a point, so no. Mm. Uh, no, I, I, I didn't like it. I agree with you about the character and I I think the violence is trying to say something about the state of her character at that point but the problem is and I would totally concede this is that you've got yeah you've you've got no baseline for what her character is anyway because you enter into this film and yes I think it's almost it feels like almost a stylistic choice that these people all seem detached from everything but I totally get that that's something that will not that will not be appealing to a great number of people and you could certainly see that as being to the movie's detriment it didn't bother me as much but uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I do. Like, I, I, I can't formulate a great argument against what you're saying. The Cronenberg apple has not fallen far from the Cronenberg tree. I've, I've got <laughs> more or less the same thing I'd say, but this is of a lot of Cronenberg's other work, which is on a lot of levels, I, I kind of respect it, but I'm not sure I particularly like it. As, and if you look at Cronenberg's uh, previous work as well, there's a lot of things that I can I can see that I like. I was getting strong existence flashbacks through all of this, but that had its, you know, David Cronenberg has this kind of weird sort of sexual body horror thing going on whereas uh, this is clearly more concerned with just common regard and violence uh, but they're both kind of leveraging them to produce the same kind of attempts at emotions of it but uh, what I took primarily from uh, Possessor is that everything was very sterile I mean clearly deliberately all of it's a very deliberate choice even Mm. the way these characters are characterless was clearly a calculated choice I don't think it worked for the film in terms of actually engaging with any of it it's a very strange film that only seems to put any kind of life into anything when it's in those moments of the extreme violence and again that's clearly a deliberate intention on the filmmaker's part but I don't think it really translated to making Mm. an overall film that you could really invest and engage with I didn't hate it Um, it's very competently done on a technical level the the physical effects are kind of interesting in in an era where you definitely don't have any of that um, if not 100% convincing but some some of them are Um, (laughs) it's it's just overall a strange fruit. I don't. I wouldn't recommend people necessarily avoid it or see it. But if it's the kind of thing that you're interested in, if you like Cronenberg's previous mm. work, you can see that you would get some mileage out of this just by watching it. I, I certainly don't hate it, and um, I I don't regret watching it. But it, 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 and I would say the same thing about a lot of uh, Cronenberg's previous work. It, it's just hard to really get into. Um, mm. But there will be a lot of people when you hit them in the, the right mood and the right uh, frame of mind, then they will probably get a lot more out of it than just a, a general audience walking into it. Um, probably not for them. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly not without merit if not entirely successful in what it's trying to do. I really enjoyed it. And I think um, I would acknowledge, I think, it, like you say, Scott, it is. I don't get the impression that it's this way by anything other than choice. I think it's a film that sets out to be essentially soulless, Yes, if that makes sense. And I'm happy with that. I'm totally on board with that. And for me, it succeeds uh, greatly as a as a tone piece. I just think it's a tone that I would understand it's not necessarily going to appeal to everybody. Yeah, I don't think it's a film that there will be great conversations to be had around necessarily but i enjoyed it for what it was and i certainly will be going back to watch it again at some point um uh, and see if i still feel the same way about it afterwards but there you go it'd be a boring world if we all like the same <laughs> things and it would certainly be a boring podcast indeed but it's terrible <laughs> shall we crash onwards then to mank 
indeed, and find out whether this is also terrible or not. Okay, Mank is... <laughs> what? <laughs> Fuds on film. Are these films terrible or not? <laughs> Those are our metrics. <laughs> on a sliding scale of zero to one. Okay, have you, you noticed the film? year we're having? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> Mank is, surprisingly, David Fincher's first film since 2014's Gone Girl. So, being a big fan of the director, please check out our episode on Fincher from February 2017 for more. I was, well, quite frankly, massively excited by the prospect of Mank. Something compounded by its subject, the writer and writing of Citizen Kane, a film that was... In fact, the very first that we ever spoke about here in Fuds on Film, and which Scott and I testified then to being huge lovers of. Gary Oldman plays Herman J. Mankiewicz, the titular Mank, though sadly in the UK that name's a bit too close for comfort <laughs> to the dirty and unpleasant Mankey, and I could never get that out of my mind. <laughs> a washed-up screenwriter employed by RKO Pictures to write the first draft of a screenplay for Orson Welles' new film, then titled American. The story of the writing of Citizen Kane has been studied and argued over for decades. So to say this is any sort of definitive portrayal of events would be... foolish. It's pure Hollywood, so, as the French say, c'est des conneries. Mankiewicz seemed to have been as unreliable a narrator in real life as he is in this film, perhaps thanks to his alcoholism the 62-year-old Oldman playing the 43-year-old Mankiewicz works. He's really got some city miles on him. So we can't take too much on faith, as a bedridden Mank guides us through flashbacks to meetings with Louis B. Mayer, William Randolph Hearst, Hearst's paramour, Marion uh, Davis, Amanda Seyfried in what is probably the film's standout performance, and boy wonder Irving Thalmerk, often against the backdrop of the 1934 California gubernatorial election in which Mayer and Hearst worked together to torpedo the campaign of Upton Sinclair, much to Mankiewicz's distaste. These served to attempt to explain their analogues in Citizen Kane and the reason for their inclusion. Conspicuous by his absence for most of the film is Wells, played by Tom Burke, who appears only fleetingly, more to give Mank a kick up the bum than anything else. He's heard more than seen, actually, and Burke deserved lots of credit for how uncannily accurate his Wells voice is. There's actually a whole mess of accents going on in here, several bad, unfortunately, with special anti-plaudits going to Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst and Lily Collins as Mankey's English secretary, Rita Alexander. A quote attributed to Wells himself, almost certainly fallaciously so, but appropriate here, comes to mind. To wit... Now we sit through Shakespeare in order to recognise the quotations. A lot of Mank makes me feel similarly, though it's portrayal of Golden Age Hollywood and famous names, with so many people of that era cameoing either in character or name alone that it feels like film fan bingo. David O'Selznick, Joe Mankiewicz, Joseph von Sternberg, Greta Garbo, John Houseman, House. Even when it's not portraying it in a negative light, there's still nothing Hollywood likes more than Hollywood. The biggest problem I have with Mank is that Herman Mankiewicz, at least as portrayed in Mank, isn't very interesting. And if I'm going to watch a film about the making of Citizen Kane, I'd far, far rather it be about Orson Welles, who is incredibly interesting. John Houseman said of Mankiewicz, 
he was one of the most intelligent, informed, witty, humane and charming men I have ever known. And there are only ever glimpses of that here. At least for the first half of the film, Mank is barely even a character, serving more as well a guide to a few important points. I originally mistyped this as pints, though that seems fitting <laughs> given the character's principal interest in the history of Hollywood and of California politics. I have no issue with Gary Oldman's performance, but he's not really given a great deal to work with, and more than anything, that's frustrating. Talking of performance, very dodgy accent aside, I also have no problem with Charles Dance's Hearst. What I do have a problem with is that Hearst, given that he's the protagonist of the exceedingly famous Romana Clef that is Citizen Kane, needs to be painted as the villain, and he really isn't. This may seem odd, given that when Fitcher and Dance worked together in Alien 3, Dance was sort of a good guy. But I feel that the director is relying on a sense of villainy coming simply from the casting of Charles Dance. Charles Dance, ergo villain. And Charles Dance does play a stonking villain, don't get me wrong. Just not here, where the true villain and principal target of Mankiewicz's antipathy is clearly Louis B. Mayer. It all feels a bit misdirected. Mank is well made, it looks good. There are no bad points about Mank per se though I don't love the screenplay style, typewritten location text, mostly due to inconsistency, nor the boomy 1930s movie sound, which plays to me as artifice, not authenticity. Though, to be fair, I stopped noticing it after a short while. It's just that it's not that interesting. It's fine, nothing more, and certainly isn't troubling the top of the list of David Fincher's work for me. Still worth saying, though. I offer two viewpoints on this, one from a day when I couldn't be bothered and one from a day when I could. Uh, <laughs> first, basically boiling down to this is all just way too much of an affectation for me. At that point, I kind of realised I might not be giving it a fair shake, so I stopped after about 10 minutes and came back the next day, at which point I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, I find Mank to be, uh, the character himself, to be quite entertaining. I found him quite funny. Um, that's pretty much all he's got going for him uh, is the kind of quips and one-liners and uh, it was enough to kind of drive the pace of the film through um, it, it doesn't keep running around obviously you don't want to come into this thinking it's anything close to a documentary it's um, almost all pretty much made from whole cloth I think there was a film called Citizen Kane um, everything else I would not be taking <laughs> on as any kind of a factual basis but it's enjoyable uh, enough it, I agree I suppose ultimately where you're coming from Drew it is not top tier Fincher um, it is ultimately just a kind of film where it's not exactly showing off if you know what I mean but it, it's it, there's no real reason to make this film and certainly to make this film the way this film has been made, it's not quite just sort of him entertaining himself, um, because I think it, ultimately it's, it's an enjoyable enough film. But I don't think the stylistics, the stylistic way it's been chosen, they've chosen to make it really enhances it. No, it really, as I said, it really felt like artifice. It yeah. didn't add anything. It's, like, it's a period piece. We'll get that from the cars and the even the way people speak and the clothes and things. You don't have to like make it sound like a 1930s film. It just yeah. it seems too much. And I don't necessarily think you shouldn't do it this way. It's an interesting experiment, but there's been kind of vaguely similar experiments done in the past with like more interesting ones. Like Was it, um, was it Far From Heaven, the kind of one that's a bit more... Uh, maybe getting the name wrong there, but it was a like a, a gay Dennis love story. Quaid, um, Julia, 
Maud Lebowski. Dennis Quaid and Maud Lebowski film. <laughs> That's Far From Heaven. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah. Think, film. Yeah, yeah. Where, where they're trying to make sort of essentially a kind of um, LBGT love story in the style of something yeah, from, where, from where, where that could not have been made just due to the, the social premise of the time. That's a kind of interesting experiment that kind of fuses the kind of style, but it has something more to say rather than just simply being a story in that time told in this sort of vaguely contemporary style. Um, Julianne been, Moore. That's sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, annoyed me for yeah. not that out, sorry. <laughs> so Manx an interesting stylistic experiment. I certainly don't regret watching it. I uh, actually enjoyed it a fair bit, but yeah, it's... Yeah, I have I have qualms about it, but I, yeah, I certainly as, as I said, in certain moods, it, those qualms could overwhelm uh, the quality of the rest of it. But yeah, I found but, it um, solidly entertaining, but I got to the end, I was like, oh, was that X? I, yeah, I did find that Mank was reasonably funny and I liked his quips, but you kind of expect that from writer. But it, you're right; it's all he's got going from. It's why I just found the character so unsatisfying to follow along. He's yeah. He's not really a character in his own life story <laughs> for a lot of it. Just, I said, it really just felt like he was a guide. It's like, right, he's your way into this part of the world at this point, and like, and here's what's going on at um, Hearst's estate that becomes Xanadu and Citizen Kane. Hmm. Um, without like, there being much to kind of hook on to in him himself. I'm one of those savages who hasn't watched Citizen Kane and that's one of the reasons I haven't watched Mank yet is because I kind of want to watch that first for a bit of context in terms of cinema history. Uh, yes, I, 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 would Mank, say, I would say it's almost essential viewing. Yeah, uh, before yeah I think it about, was, yeah. That's one We've reason. Foolish but, to not do it, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> yeah. The other reason would be the aesthetic choice, which um, is not something that I think doesn't have its place and it's not something that I necessarily disagree with but it just strikes me as unusually trite for someone like David Fincher to adopt this kind of um, presentational affectation for is there a narrative justification for the decision to shoot in because like it's even like a mono sound mix and stuff isn't it yeah it sounds horrible it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's horrible kind of and the booby quality and it's the sound more than anything that was bothering yeah. I really I kind of if I stopped thinking about it after a while but just, as soon as like that kind of 1930s kind of sound and sound mix came out oh no 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 I do not like this go away this is bad yeah. <laughs> it's the really sort of offensive glamour glow thing going on as well uh, when yeah. I watched the trailer for it that I just found aesthetically I was like oh no um, and it's not that there's not a place for that I appreciated it uh, to a certain extent in what was the Soderbergh film The Good German uh, mm. I, I know that it gets pilloried but I thought that was uh, I thought it was interesting at the time but like I say it just strikes me as unusually crass for someone of Fincher's capability to want to employ that as a visual method um, in something which is clearly a bit of a passion project because it's his dad's screenplay isn't it yeah, his, his so dad wonder, has since passed away but Scott was kind of, kind of wondering like wondering why he chose to make this and I just wonder if it's because it was his dad's screenplay I think well, he's made a commitment if, to his dad certainly that he yeah, would make that screenplay and that's, maybe not that's why this without that that's yeah. So not knowing the man, I don't know, but that would be my guess. And that's not not legit because, um, I'd, and there's no reason why I wouldn't want, expect Fincher to want to take on this material. It's just purely from an aesthetic point of, point of view. I know this will sound really weird and really sort of, um, superficial, but I'm really going to need to be in the mood to watch Mank. <laughs> that's, yeah. Uh, so yes, there you go. Again, I haven't watched it. Don't have an opinion, but there it is anyway. There's, there's your opinion, nevertheless. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't say I don't do anything for you, listeners. <laughs>
cool. Okay. Um, Which takes us on to... That's on to... Um, well, the film that was going to save cinemas, right? When um, <laughs> cinemas reopened again in the summer... Then there, there was basically a film out for a while, which was unhinged. <laughs> yes, How did that work out, Scott. Yes, unhinged. It's all over the front page. Russell Crowe gets road rage in this B movie thriller, casting from real life. There, uh, here he plays. Certainly done. He plays Tom Cooper, introducing himself to us by brutally killing his ex-wife and her new man. As the police hunt him, he's cut up on the freeway by Karen Pistorius's Rachel, rushing to get her kid to school while having a nightmare of a morning. That turns into a nightmare of a day as the unhinged, boom, title drop, Cooper decides to teach Rachel a lesson by going after and killing everyone Rachel loves in a variety of nasty fashions, not purely vehicular. It is a silly B-movie concept and delivers silly B-movie results. (laughs) It's predicated almost entirely on Crow's performance, which is every bit as chonky as the fat suit he inhabits for no reason whatsoever, and (laughs) as a gentleman of extraordinary stature myself, I feel this is unwarranted cultural appropriation. Um, But... (laughs) It is enough to make a film that doesn't otherwise have all that much going for it fairly watchable. It's a brainless bit of exploitation, so if you're in the mood for that, give it a bash, but it is by no means essential viewing. Um, yes, saving cinemas, it is not, but it's an alright B-movie flick. Yes. <laughs> I don't think there's all that much more to say about it than that. No, I, I wouldn't disagree. It's, it's, a, it's a B-movie with somehow an, an A-movie star. Yes. How you did that? I, I don't know. Um, I was also puzzled by the fat suit. Why? Because fair enough. Okay. We had one sphere, uh, and it's it's very much a kind of chewing the scenery sort of role from Russell Crowe. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of subtlety in this film. Um, no, uh, but it's entertaining enough. It's uh, nobody makes any particularly stupid decisions and enough of the things of like, you know, why didn't you do this are, are covered in it, so there's a bit of thought mm. gone in there, more so than this sort of film often gets, so I appreciated that um, you know, the, the characters who are in trouble aren't making like spectacularly stupid decisions or anything, which is always an irritation, mm-hmm. and it's it, it's 90 minutes it doesn't outstay its welcome, and it's kind of silly and daft but absolutely not a film that needed to be seen in the cinema no and it's weird though, one thing is it has been talked about, and I guess maybe because it's marketed as a road rage film, except it isn't really given the film starts off with him brutally murdering people, so you already know he's, it's not like he just snapped of anything, it's not it's, like, um, it's primarily, primarily like a rage film, yeah, the road bit's incidental to it. Yeah, it's like, he's just angry just wherever happens. he goes, he just happened to be on the road at that point. <laughs> Sadly, that's inciting incident for the next day, but, um, <laughs> he was, start off the film with him already, you know, knee-deep in blood. So, <laughs> that's a strange way to push it. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's entirely forgettable, but you know, I was entertained by it. Uh, I'll do it. Are, are we not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> I have no intention of ever watching this. Oh, dear. Yeah. We've we got move, a tinny, mate. Shall we move onwards then to Tenet? Yes. Um, shall we? Uh, the film that I thought was supposed to be the saviour of cinema, guys. Good grief. Um, will they Will they please make up their minds? Um, it's unlikely that Tenet, the latest from director Christopher Nolan, will have crept onto your radar undetected, and about equally as unlikely that you will need me to fill you in on the controversy surrounding its self-evangelising status as the supposed saviour of cinema. 
we'll we'll leave it we'll leave it to Tenet and Unhinged to sort it out amongst themselves. <laughs> Let them work it out. I'll leave my opinions on this for the conclusion of my review, but for now, all you need to know is that Nolan has once again thrown a dart at a random back issue of New Scientist and used whatever <laughs> phrasing it pierced as the scaffold for an action thriller with espionage overtones. In this instance, the protagonist, known cleverly as the protagonist, John David Washington, finds himself subject to a technology called inversion, which is being used to send objects, information, and ultimately people backwards in time from somewhere in the future. These antagonists-to-be, who we are told exist at a point in time subject to irreversible environmental catastrophe, are using Russian billionaire Andrei Sator, Ken Branagh, as a vessel for their machinations, which involve the assembly of a physical algorithm sent from the future to reverse the flow of time, bulldozing our past to make way for their future. Confused? I have bad news for you. You still have Nolan's trademark purposeful obfuscation of dialogue to contend with. (laughs) The concept itself is simple enough. An object's direction of travel through time can be reversed by placing it in a revolving room known as a turnstile, whereupon hilarity may ensue, as fights, car chases and angry conversations take place between people and objects moving in opposite temporal directions. The problem common to pretty much any movie plot incorporating time travel, is that it only makes sense so long as it is narratively convenient, and not so much the second you stop to think about any of it. But, as Clements Posey's massively underused scientist suggests, it's better if you don't try to understand it. Just feel it. (laughs) Um, At two and a half hours long, Tenet could probably do with reversing some of its own flow of time. But in actual fact, I never found myself particularly bored. Admittedly, a lot of that time passed playing games of guess what the person mumbling beneath a gas mask in front of a jet engine just said. (laughs) But even on a second viewing, where I picked up the loose plot ends and turned the subtitles on, I still found things zipped along nicely, and I'd suggest this may actually be one of Nolan's best in terms of pacing. Unfortunately, a lot of the director's established issues persist. If you want emotional involvement for your $200 million, then sorry, but you need to continue to look elsewhere. And if you're expecting female characters to be much more than damsels in distress, then, again, sorry, you're right out of luck. Once again, Nolan also manages to insert himself into his movie, this time in the form of foppish dandy Neil, Robert Pattinson, who appears with increasing frequency as the protagonist's apparent handler, and a convenient mouthpiece for exposition, who can get any confused audience members back up to speed ahead of the next set piece. On this occasion, our Nolan analogue gets a pass because I've grown increasingly fond of Pattinson and he's a good deal of fun in this and I find myself actually looking forward to the next Batman movie. So that's something I took from it. But that's by the by. Is Tenet any good? Uh, Certainly I found it enjoyable enough to pass the time but I don't know that I'm going to add it to my collection anytime soon. After a second viewing where the nuances of his performance became more obvious, my biggest takeaway was actually John David Washington. I know people keep saying they'd love to see Nolan do a Bond movie. Personally, I think that's one of the worst ideas in the history of bad (laughs) ideas. I would, however, love to see Washington do a Bond movie, specifically as Bond, and I can't believe that's not something I'm hearing anyone else mention in the wake of all this. But never mind. Tenet, it's all right. I see him as Bond. Yeah, that's not a bad shout. So I can't think of too many other people around to be. People aren't. Can I just say people aren't having the conversation because he's American, and that is the only reason. And that is a pretty stupid reason. Yeah. yeah. Had you seen um, him in anything before, Craig? 
No, this is the first I've actually seen John David Although Washington. You really should check out Black Klansman. Yeah, I know Black Klansman's on the so, on the watch list, but really I just I watched him move through this film and that sort of dispassionate suave but dispassionate removal from events and especially that sort of casual fight through the kitchen in the restaurant near the start. Yeah. Uh-huh. And immediately I was like, Oh, yeah, I know everybody's that, talking about Idris that's Elba. That's, that's Bond, isn't it? Yeah, that's a no yeah. go. But this guy could be Bond. Can I just ask how you managed to say with a straight face physical algorithm? <laughs> uh, I googled physical algorithm because I said to myself that's not a thing. And there are papers talking about physical algorithms, but they seem to be papers that no one's come across and then not read past the first paragraph, (laughs) which I don't think is anything he's ever done with one of his concepts before anyway. He usually just gets people like Kip Thorne to nod and say, that's great, Chris. Um, So yeah, physical algorithm. Mm, Or basically bad lollipop. Would that be better? (laughs) I I do like to have my science fiction based on something at least vaguely scientific and like physical algorithm and we're going to reverse the entropy like no that doesn't mm-hmm. make it like, what you just you just stuck some words together there and hope yeah. that people would think it meant something there's something in this film about it's about 20 minutes and i think can't be more than that and the, the two scenes are not quite back to back that kind of informed my thinking for the rest of the film which mm. is you start off you, you give it the setups like oh here we're reversing entropy these things we don't understand them there's not that many they're all kicking around here we're not quite sure what it is yada, yada, yada. and then it's not quite the next scene but it's the scene after i think where Having established all this is quite rare, we don't know what's going on, they have exactly the kind of bizarre reverse time-travelling bungee-jumping cord they need to get up to a balcony. It's like, okay, so you're a stupid film then. You're fast (laughs) and furious, but maybe a little bit less insulting. And that was the kind of level I viewed the rest of the film. And on that basis, I enjoyed it well enough. It had lots of nice things that exploded in car chases that were all crazy and all that stuff. And I couldn't really think of it much more than that and that's maybe doing it a bit of a disservice because I don't think it is quite that bad but clearly Tenant's the sort of film where Nolan's wanting you to sit there with a pen and paper and do like time loops and all this kind of stuff and try and work out what's going where and I am very glad I didn't see this in a cinema because Mm. while I'm sure it would be spectacularly visually enhanced, the audio would be absolutely ruined by a screen full of Mm -hmm. people trying to explain to each other what the hell is going on, (laughs) particularly given, as you say, everyone's mumbling. And in in terms of engaging an audience, I question the wisdom of putting everyone in bulky protective gear that makes it very difficult to identify who's on screen at any time in a film Mm -hmm. that's already very deliberately obscuring who's who, what's what, how's that, and when's when. So, yes... Ultimately, I enjoyed it by simply switching my brain off and watching the pretty things explode. Um, But I I, I struggled to give it much more credit than that. It's a very expensive, shiny toy, um, which I enjoyed watching well enough, I think, for two and a half hours, it it battered through it well enough. But yeah, it is by no means a masterpiece of anything. Um, I also think the sound mix would be ruined by the fact that or the sound room by the terrible sound mix. You can't hear anything. Even a scene in a restaurant, like, what are they saying? What? Hello? Because like, <laughs> there's there's some music beds and everybody's saying like this. Turning board and plow points. What? There's balls down your yeah. throat. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I just I did enjoy it because uh, it it bangs yeah. along and doesn't really give you time to think, which is good because if you do, yeah. it's, oh, it's not good. Uh, Clemens yeah. Poesi's character, as you say, Craig, completely underused. But she says, right, these are inverted. Okay, um, uh, actually, I'm not quite sure what this film means, but it doesn't work particularly well. But okay, no. these inverted, and then. Well, it uh, doesn't work full stop. Yeah. Once we knew what to look for, 
we kept finding them everywhere. Then you suddenly see that he's in this archive full of drawers of inverted stuff. It all mm. looks the same. You haven't explained at all what to look for. What do you mean by when you what to look for? Is that relevant? Apparently <laughs> not. But you thought, and so it's, just, it's full of stuff like that. And then yeah, that's what I thought after that scene. It's finally a film. There's the crossover I've always wanted for that scene in Austin Powers where he gets confused about time travel and a crossover yeah. between that and Inspector Gadget, where they just pull out whatever yeah. they need whenever they need it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, I suggest you don't think about it much too. They've literally <laughs> lifted that out of Austin camera. Powers. Yeah, yeah, um, and then it's one of the worst things too is like. If you think about it, you'll think about the dialogue. You really don't want to think about the dialogue. I mean, do you think it's not the worst I've heard, but it's so ordinary. And mm. your character's saying really stupid things too, like Elizabeth Dubicki's character. She's lying and um, Neil, um, sorry, yeah, Neil, uh, Robert Patterson, who Craig I also am beginning to really like now, particularly after mm. The Lighthouse, I think, although yeah. maybe a wee bit before that as well. Yeah. Uh, and he's explained to her what's happening and like the singularity thing. Another thing which it's not quite a singularity, but yeah, with this algorithm going to destroy stuff. Like, why? Why did they think that would work? And why did somebody else want them to do? Uh, no, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'll be here all night. But no, uh, that's, says, that, that's the least of the worries. <laughs> no, but so he explains that and says, like, basically, when this happens, everybody dies. The whole world dies. Every basically, existence stops. Right, and then our character says, even my son. No, no, no. Um, no, he's exempt from the laws of physics. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody will cease to exist except your kid, who will be fine. That's yeah. it, your mind. You want to oh. think that's just... And that's, oh, I'll be alone in the infinite void, but he'll be there, it, he'll be fine. It's full of dialogue like that. It's just like either really dumb or just really... Just incredibly yeah. ordinary stuff. It's like, and this is a professional screenwriter, really? <laughs> to me, the dialogue's way down the list of concerns. Do you know what's one of my chief concerns, Drew? Is you'll notice you've just you've just mentioned Elizabeth Debicki. Now you will notice that in my recap of the plot, I certainly didn't mention her. She's one of the main mm. characters. It's not necessary for me to even mention her to summarise the plot for you. So that tells you everything you need to know about <laughs> so her, how important her character is. And I actually, I would disagree with something that Scott said that Christopher Nolan wants you to congratulate him and sort of sit down and draw draw uh, lines between points and stuff to figure it all out. I, I don't think he wants you to do that at all because the minute you do that, it patently doesn't work. <laughs> yes. Christopher Nolan wants to hit you with enough stuff that you sit back yeah. and you go, my God, he's smart. No, he's You're not. You're never supposed to stop and think. You're supposed to just keep going, going, yeah. going, going, going. So you he's, never have a chance to think. He's really, he's really not. I also want to know which part of this film really needed to be shot on IMAX. He's obsessed with IMAX and for no particularly good reason. I was going reason. to mention exactly that. Thank you. Because I, yeah. I was I I also, my form to my head. Like, I also why? don't think any of the set pieces are particularly spectacular. I was supposed no. to have my jaw dropped by them crashing a 747 into what is clearly a plywood extension built onto an existing yeah. terminal building. <laughs> that was a wow. spectacularly underwhelming stunt. I, like, you've like, stunned stuff with planes before. Mm. Stripping the plane in midair in yeah. the dark night of Isis. That yeah. was an incredible stunt. Yeah. And this one, there's like, oh, okay, the plane ran into the side of a clear, yeah, it's yeah. a clear extension. It's very obviously his, an extension. His, um, his commitment to physical, uh, like practical effects work is commendable, but he's, 
he uses it to the point of obsession. He's got no appreciation whatsoever of the notion that it should be used when appropriate and that there's yeah. nothing wrong with other effects work elsewhere yeah. because ultimately a lot of the time it can be to the detriment um, and it actually end ends up being yeah. incredibly underwhelming. Yeah, um, talking about underwhelming, the end of Dunkirk, Scott yeah. and I had both had the same issue. I don't remember go if you did, Craig, but because mm. he was so determined to use only practical effects when like the one thing that CGI is unequivocally good at is scale. Yeah. It's like, it's like well, apparently the Dunkirk yep. is formed by four boats and a dinghy. Yeah. yeah, and there were 20 people on the beach waiting to leave. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I think it's commendable, but again, it's a, it's a, as with anything else in filmmaking, it's a tool that needs to be deployed at the right moment and the right time yeah. to, to the right effect. And I honestly think for all that, it's not enough that he is committed to using that consistently. He has demonstrated time and time again that he doesn't know when it shouldn't be applied. And that's a big problem for me. I actually don't think this is all that spectacular a movie. There wasn't any part of it which blew me away yeah um, it's fine that's it yeah it's absolutely that. fine that film was fine i enjoyed it and it was fine but nothing well, better here's the annoying thing as well is that there could have been uh pretty awesome moments because they take great pains at one point at the at the point at which uh the protagonist makes the decision they're gonna they're gonna invert and go back after that car chase scene at the point at which the movie essentially flips over and if it actually kind of plays out backwards which i think he wants us to be really uh congratulatory about as well that essentially there's a point in the middle of the film where it mirrors and it kind of starts playing backwards essentially let's blow your mind tenet's a palindrome Oh, oh my days! Such a clever Sator. name, isn't it? Sator, Rotas, what? Um, there's there, there's a point there where the where the protagonist gets briefed by the female soldier whose name escapes me because she's a woman, so she's not important. <laughs> um, and she talks about all these things, terrible things that could happen if you do certain stuff. And you think to yourself, "Oh, this is going to be cool. There's going to be some really interesting stuff we're going to get to see here when these rules get broken." They never do. They they don't apply at all. There's no concern whatsoever. Um, he's in no way concerned when he goes back to fight himself um, that he's been told that you know god forbid that you should actually come into contact with yourself he's never concerned at any point that the other him that he's fighting that a glove might come off and you might accidentally touch the hand or something and all the rough and tumble there's none of that you know you know there's never any threat that anyone's going to get spectacularly annihilated on screen because they've broken the rules none of that plays out it's just yeah. pretty pedestrian for the most part yeah, and the even when they've mentioned sorry, so even when they've mentioned earlier that it's basically like matter and antimatter colliding yeah which exactly, a lot of energy and annihilation. Yeah, I'm like, that's going to be cool. Never happens. <laughs> the final, the climactic battle is very cool in concept, and to my mind, that could have lent itself to really quite spectacular. There's one part of that which is quite cool, um, and the rest of it is really just a mess. And bless, uh, is it Ludwig Göransson? The I've just butchered him. The composer. Um, Oh no, uh, he's done a pretty good job with the score because there are actually more cues in the score as to what's happening on screen um, and it's really crucial in that sequence that uh, that you have the musical cues of the music playing backwards any time that, that blue, blue Team is on screen um, to keep track of what's happening but really it wasn't until, I've seen this film three times now um, and again, and it, it, it never felt like two and a half hours so on some level I must have been enjoying it but that final battle still doesn't 100% make sense to me after three viewings um, it still feels like a wasted opportunity too. It could have been so much interesting stuff done there. I was like, oh, yeah. all the people look the same because they're all wearing masks, yeah. and they don't yeah. really. Like, this building kind of goes back up and falls down slightly, but uh, okay, Meh. 
Yeah. Like a building getting blown up from two directions in time. That 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 was that was quite cool for a moment. And then so well that's past. Now it's just people <laughs> running around running and shooting at each other and yeah. sometimes smoke's getting sucked into the ground where a bomb's gone off travelling but uh, and it's just it just never I th- the the only real satisfaction for me came uh with the revelation of Neil's nature towards the end. Uh, and that was quite satisfying because of the way that Pattinson plays it actually, and you realise the nobility of what he's he's actually doing. Hmm. and the reason why Pattinson can sort of just be on hand at a moment's notice when you need him earlier in the movie he just seems to be everywhere um, and can arrange stuff So, uh, but for me I think the, the biggest thing about Tenet is understanding um, the sheer hubris the sheer ego of Christopher Nolan in uh, in leveraging his relationship with Warner Brothers and insisting this got released into cinemas and encouraging people to head out to oh, a cinema, don't get me started putting that. themselves at danger in the middle of a global fucking pandemic. Yes. Read for the which, goddamned room. <laughs> yes, and that, let's be clear about that, that is not that was not Warner Brothers' decision. That was Christopher Nolan leveraging his contractual commitments with uh, Warner Brothers to insist that that is what happened. Christopher Nolan Nolan thinks his popular science woo-woo bullshit plot (laughs) and his spectacular flat IMAX cinematography and his underwhelming practical effects work is enough to convince people to go out and kill themselves and others in order to see it in a cinema. And I will never forgive that man for that. Uh, and I've, I've, I've listened recently to some podcasts that have spoken about comments that he's made online recently about the decision of, of Warner to move all yeah. of their content to HBO in future. I really despise Christopher Nolan now, um, and there was no way I was ever going to watch this movie in the, cinema, uh, in the cinema. Why, in the middle of a pandemic, you would not give people the choice to watch your movie safely, to assume that your movie was some sort of artistic behemoth that just simply could not be appreciated if it was not seen in a badly specced, badly calibrated cinema, <laughs> as opposed to at home on halfway decent equipment, where I had a great experience and I could go and make a cup of tea when I wanted and I didn't have to worry about stuff like dying and or killing other people. Um, I, just, I just find his behaviour and his attitude has been so far removed from reality that I am disgusted with him. Yeah. And I make a pledge now never to pay to go to the cinema to see another Christopher Nolan movie again. So, f*** you, Christopher Nolan. And also, <laughs> Warner Brothers for not having had the guts to pull him up to rank on that. Um, Look, I mean, I, I, on a level, I get it. We all love cinema around here. It's why we're doing this podcast. But <laughs> no one wants to see it go away. There's a very real chance that might happen. Obviously, this is going extending. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of implications. I can see why, uh, particularly the whole Warner Brothers thing and the HBO deal. I, I can see why it would raise concerns. But again, read the room. We're in the middle of a mm. deadly pandemic where people are going to be sitting, well, as you want it, in rooms, breathing the same air as other people. It's, it's, it is obviously never going to be COVID secure, as we'd hope that it might be at some point. So just get over yourselves. God a damn it. Him and all the rest of these. twat yeah. of a man. I mean, I understand want people wanting to other people to see it in cinema, but just... Can you just wind your neck in for a minute? Mm. Get some into but gravity is very annoying him and um, and some <laughs> of the rest of the ones that were uh, affected by the, the kind of HBO decision. And I agree, Warner Brothers could perhaps have done that a bit more uh, <laughs> amicably on, they on their end. They could have gone about it in still, a slightly better way. But yeah. yeah. 
they're right and you're wrong. <laughs> yes, there's not really any argumentation in that one, is there? It's just no. pretty obvious, and uh, yeah, they all no. look a bit a bit silly trying yeah. to say anything otherwise. He's betrayed himself there with his with a, with his behaviour around this whole thing, and I and I, and I don't, I'm not just saying it for effect. I, that that is disgusting enough to me that he insisted this going to cinemas where he knew people would be compelled, and you can place the blame on the people who who simply felt that they would have had to have gone and and not having had the uh you know n- not having been able to resist under the circumstances i think they are also equally stupid people but i think his decision as a filmmaker to insist on that i i genuinely will not i genuinely will never forgive him for that he has literally put people's lives at risk people will have died because of christopher nolan's decision that this had to be shown in cinemas when it was and i yeah. don't understand I, I can't imagine a time and place where I will ever forgive him for that, and I will never pay to see another one of his movies in the cinema. So, that's that. <laughs> I just um, think it's just, disgusting. Just And it's um, a shame, because it's not a terrible film. It's all right, it's entertaining, but... Um, I just want to move back to the film itself, um, rather than talk no. about Christopher and all his terrible arrogance, because I'm just going to get angry, and I'm fed up with being angry, Craig. Going mm. back I understand. Time, how appropriate. Yes, <laughs> just to pick up on your point about the the IMAX thing and which sections you chose to do in IMAX too. Mm. There's a number of points to this. I thought, and we love IMAX, and it's you could use that that scale and the the larger frame to have a particularly different look about things. Like, and what you've chosen to do is to have a couple of people sitting in a car. Well, <laughs> that was worth the, t- the time. Well done, and there's like kind of totally. so see that in the biggest screen available as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah uh, it was a nice car, Drew. <laughs> I don't know that yeah. I could have uh, appreciated the uh, the you know the interior spec quite as well if I hadn't seen it on the biggest screen available. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's so full of just kind of it's a very ordinary shots there. It kind of matches the terribly ordinary dialogue too. Mm. Uh, the other. What I think beef of bit of film I wanted to mention though is because it's a it's a bugbear of mine in films like this when like characters don't act professionally. Let's take a character like somebody like a John McClane, right? Who ends up in a situation to has to become the hero and maybe he doesn't make the difficult choice of like he can't sacrifice one person's life for for hundreds of thousands or something. And you can buy that character doing that because that's a very difficult thing to do. But when your character is a trained CIA hitman mm. and decides that he's going to sacrifice the entire universe for some women who he doesn't know, we're expected to think he's somehow he's in love with, but they have no chemistry whatsoever. Just, no, it just hasn't been established at all. It's so offensive. I hate that so much when you have like somebody who's a professional and it's like, no, no, um, I'm just going to let everybody in the world die now because I'm going to this woman might get shot. Well, and for exactly the same reason as well, though, Drew, her decision to, uh, you know, well, I can't Um, skip ahead 30 seconds if you haven't seen the movie, but... Yeah, her, her dis- skip ahead 30 seconds if you haven't seen the movie. So her decision to shoot Sator because, quote, I couldn't bear to let him die thinking that he'd won. Well, the stakes <laughs> are everyone else dying. Yeah, so I don't, I don't universe. really care about your selfish motivation and your personal satisfaction, love. Yeah, at least though with her, she's just this person who's been 
emotionally abused by this yes. guy. She's been driven by emotion. somewhat more understandable, but when it's um, John David Washington's character, he's this um, mm. professional, just, I, I hate that so much. Yeah. Um, just in contrast, yeah. this, this film did have a welcome return of one of my favourite supporting character archetypes, which is like the hyper-competent support team leader who gives the impression that they're mm-hmm. most likely in an equally entertaining movie somewhere else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is, can I just say as well, is Aaron Taylor-Johnson drunk when he was filming this? Because I swear he slurred certain words as he was... As it, I don't know if he was just wrestling with trying to sound like a proper cockney or whatever, but there were certain points, especially in that briefing before the temporal <laughs> pincer movement, um, that uh, that he, he just wasn't pronouncing words words properly and I'm like you're English those words are English why are you struggling with this Aaron Taylor Johnson and I'm honest to God I think he was drinking I didn't really notice that. I, mean, I, I didn't notice, but it's not the sort of film where you would notice dialogue being a bit difficult to understand, really. So. No, exactly. Well, yeah, Soundmix exactly. has done most of that work for <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. why you can't understand it, because it's so badly mixed. Why do you think it's he continues mixing. to do that? Because he knows by now what people's opinions of that are. Nobody enjoys his sound mix, except the fanboys who would tell you that every film he makes is the best thing since sliced bread anyway, because mm. of no imagination. And certainly they can't imagine a Spielberg film without the heart, clearly. <laughs> so why is it like you think no nuance either. So you can like yeah. one thing about a person's film and not like other yeah. stuff I yeah mean, exactly I'll, I'll give him a pass with Bane it made sense for that guy to be a bit mumbly because mm. well he's got the mask on everyone else maybe not so much maybe just try talking properly but there's a thing. they even conceded though with the mix on the home releases of that stuff that's true they 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 it, even at the cinema because I think it was you went back and see like the first trailer yeah. Bane was when and all of a sudden he was actually <laughs> properly not so bad. You could actually hear what he was saying in the film, but still. Yeah. yeah. So he himself has conceded to the fact that, okay, I get it, the, these, <laughs> these sound mixes aren't doing anyone. But then he keeps doing it with every new film. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Um, could it be that he's a monumental prick? <laughs> no, it's the audience that are wrong. <laughs> How disappointed I was by Kenneth Branagh because he was a lot more fun doing his silly Russian yes. accent and Jack Ryan shadow recruit than he was he here. Was, he Absolutely. was. Oh, I think he was the only one having fun in this movie. I. I, I mean, this more fun as a Russian in, in Jack Ryan, though. Yeah, well, this this may be an unpopular opinion, but both my wife and I said that actually we, we bought him as being quite uh, convincingly um, dangerous. But then I know other people who have just laughed outright at his performance. So oh, no, I, I, I kind of believe there was a second, but there's something about the eyes. And yeah. again, that worked in Jack Ryan, but just, uh, he, he was having more fun with it in Jack Ryan, and the, the accent was funnier. Yeah. yeah. This is like his diet comedy accent, but I still enjoyed it. Just, just I know, apropos of nothing, um, according to Wikipedia, at least as of a couple of days ago, Kenneth Branagh as Andrei Sator, a Russian oligarch who communes with the future, which I thought was a nice turn of phrase. Hmm. Wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> communes with the future. Good grief. Uh, we still got one film left to talk about, haven't we? We do. Well, I'll do that. Yes. We probably should stop talking about this because, as much as I thought it was enjoyable, it's just making us all angry. <laughs> Shall we move on to you? In particular, the one who's seen it most often. Yes. <laughs> yes. Funny how it's having that effect. Recorder, the Marion Stokes project, is a classic example of the premise being vastly more interesting than the execution. That premise stems from the obsessive recording of television broadcasts, primarily in use in current affairs undertaken by a former librarian and civil rights activist from Philadelphia, Marion Stokes. Stokes, a black woman, was initially concerned about portrayals of black people in the civil rights movement of television news, but eventually amplified her interest to pretty much all current affairs, as portrayed on US television networks. 
By the time she died, aged 83 in 2012, she had amassed more than 70,000 VHS and Betamax cassettes containing more than 800,000 hours of footage, much of which was deleted from the archives of the broadcasters themselves. After her death, her family sought someone to take charge of this incredible, if overwhelming, archive, with the San Francisco-based non-profit organisation The Internet Archive stepping up to the task and aiming to digitise as much material as they were able and provide it to the public for access. And that sounded really interesting to me. 35 years of news coverage in which it should be possible to spot trends and overlooked matters that, in hindsight, were of major importance. There are any number of interesting narratives that could have been built from the material, even with the limitation that only a fraction of it has so far been reviewed. What a disappointment then that that makes up perhaps 10 to 15 minutes of this hour and a half long documentary. With the rest, the story of Marion Stokes herself. I just simply don't care. Parts of her story are interesting and it's certainly valid, even necessary, to put some of it in there for flavour. But it's what the whole film is about. What a total bust. This is exacerbated by that spectacularly irritating modern documentary conceit, The Reconstruction. Though here, that is in large part scenes of the back of the head of a woman in a wig being driven around Philadelphia. It's actually laughable. Even the few bits of footage that are shown are not as impactful as the director, Matt Wolfe, clearly thinks they are. In one section, four videos are shown together, running in real time, from a little before 9am on the 11th of September 2001, from ABC, CBS... Fox News and one other, uh, MSNBC I think. It begins with the first network describing a possible plane strike in the World Trade Centre, with the other networks gradually, over the course of a few minutes, reporting the story. With Fox News, who had been showing some vapid morning TV stuff, being last. It can't be doubted that this is a dig at Fox News, who are, let us be scrupulously clear, evil and harmful, but there's nothing here. No one could have known at that time what was going on. And it's literally a few minutes before Fox also pick up the story. George Dobby is sitting in that classroom, this is not. The footage itself is mildly interesting, but it's a cheap shot, which is crazy given how many easy, legitimate targets Fox News offers each and every day. If, like me, your interest is piqued by the idea of the archive, then just go and check out the Internet Archive, where many of the clips are available often searchable with keywords thanks to the closed captioning many of the recordings contained and give recorder a body swerve. What a sad waste. Well, I've got good news for Marion Stokes. If we invert her videotapes, then in 30 years' time she'll be able to use them again. (laughs) (laughs) I've not seen this. Might even find a Betamax player. (laughs) I've not seen this, so I'm only commenting what you said there, Drew, is you thought this sounded like an interesting premise. And I read this premise and thought, no, that doesn't sound like an interesting premise. (laughs) So... Seems like I made the right decision there. <laughs> I hadn't even got a clue what it was until you started talking about it, Drew. So <laughs> uh, the premise is like, so it's like the light is like there's just a massive archive and it's like even just dipping into random, think what kind of interesting gems you might be able to find. Um and then it's like, no, there's basically none of that. It's it's mm. all about the the person who did it and like, okay, that's that's not an hour and a half worth. It's not yeah. interesting, it's not important, it's not ma- it doesn't matter this. Like, you stick a bit in there about like why she did it, who she was, fair enough. And then, um, but no, it's the whole film. It's like, oh. And I suppose I should just be thankful that it didn't 
become one of those films where actually the documentary is about the documentary maker. And I'm yeah. so sick of those. <laughs> uh, I hate those with a passion and they're so common nowadays. It's, like, it's just about, uh, I said, here's my story. Actually, but what my actual story is, is me and my struggle to make this story. But me, 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 me. And it's not that, fortunately. Uh, but it's just, what a, what a waste of an interesting idea, I thought. Well, that will wrap us up for today and indeed for 2020. So good riddance. Uh, we will rejoin you in 2021, which hopefully at some point might be better. Uh, uh, we'll be talking about some New Year 90s neo-noir. So we'll see you on the 1st of January for that one. But until next time, take care of yourself and each other. And I shall bid you adieu and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and all that. And I'm sure that my compadres will do too. Bye. Bye. <laughs>